Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. And welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, kicking off a brand new week, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Morning there, Rhino. Howdy, howdy. Well, it got a little chilly this weekend. Uh, No, it got cold. (laughs) I played golf yesterday. Uh, messed with my body clock. Yeah. Because hey. I sat there, and it's like the middle of the afternoon, and it's a little bit of chill in the air, and you don't want to quite turn the heater on and get it hot. So you just wrap up in a blanket. And then you wake up four hours later from an unintentional nap. <laughs> Man, did it get in the 20s overnight here uh, in central for Mississippi? Central Mississippi, I do believe it did. I don't know if it hit the 20s in south Mississippi, but, yeah, from central Mississippi north, it managed to get down into the 20s. Yeah. It was cold. I know that. The Dow up 375 at this point. It started out, uh, the futures were down quite a bit in the red. And then the Dow opened up uh, sort of flat. Now it's up. There's so much going on that are affecting your money, markets, especially over the weekend. Wow. In a blockbuster deal. I guess you could call it that. You got UBS stepping in to acquire Credit Suisse, Swiss banks. $3.2 billion is what they paid, which is not a lot of money, honestly, when you consider how long that bank's been around. $3.2 billion. But when you look underneath the covers at this deal, <clears throat> there were... A significant, a significant value of bonds that uh, investors had acquired from the bank. Talking about Credit Suisse, seventeen point three billion to be exact. Well, as part of this deal, the seventeen point three billion of bonds are wiped out. Now, this is weird to me, folks, because you got shareholders in the bank who are being made whole, their their shares in Credit Suisse are being exchanged for shares in the acquirer, that being UBS. But those who loaned, literally, Credit Suisse Bank in buying Credit Suisse's bonds, they're taking a haircut. 
Haircut as in, you're losing everything. I've never seen a situation, and I'm, I'm learning something over the weekend about how this works. Never seen a situation where debt holders are subordinate to equity. Equity here, senior to debt holders. That's unusual. And it's because of these special types of, of bonds that... Uh, that were sold by Credit Suisse that is, I'm finding out is sort of common in the banking industry. And that's what's a, little, a bit surprising. These bonds are called contingent convertible bonds. COCOS is the acronym for them. And so bottom line is, even though this bank sold for, for uh, $3.2 billion, the bondholders take a $17.3 billion loss. Effectively, this bank was sold for a negative $14.3 billion. Unbelievable. Now, why is this important to us? I think it just shows more instability in the banking industry overall. And there was a report I read over the weekend that suggested nearly 200 banks in this country are also vulnerable to the same sort of risk that took down the Silicon Valley Bank. And that, quite simply, is the value of their assets. Now, I'm not suggesting to run out and withdraw your money from the bank. I I don't think that's prudent or necessary. But a study... Because what, 200-ish? 200, yeah. Out of the what, four thousand or so, something four to like five thousand commercial banks in the yeah. U.S. It approaches the four thousand dollar number. Last I looked at it, a four thousand number. Pardon me. So, so that what is always been a concern in the banking industry is what's called fractional banking, and it basically means that they're not required to have enough assets, liquid assets, on the balance sheet to accommodate total withdrawal at the same time, only a fraction of it. So an analogy that I would offer is is like the phone network. You know there's been times in the past, you don't see it anymore because we figured out with technology how to produce massive amounts of capacity. But there were there were times in the past, in the old landline days, those that are, are listening, you remember on certain days, Certain situations, Mother's Day is one that comes to mind. You're trying to call your mother and wish them Happy Mother's Day, and you get a, all circuits are busy recording. I know you might not be old enough to remember those situations, but uh, maybe so back in the well, line. I remember the busy signal. Yeah, so that's what was going on. I didn't have it, to pick up the phone and tell the lady on the other end to connect me. but Yeah, well, so the point is, is that the system, the network, wasn't built to accommodate everybody making a call at the same time. Everybody had a connection, had a phone number, and could call any other number. But it was built on estimates of what the typical workload would be, typical uh, just need in terms of circuits, bandwidth, etc. And all that was fine as long as everybody didn't want to get on at the same time or or more than the system was built to accommodate. And that's essentially the way the banking business works. It's not built around a system where, well, everybody goes and wants their money out. It don't work. 
It doesn't, uh, it can't handle that. So that's what's going on here, that banks could run out of cash literally if they had a run. I don't see that happening. And this puts the Fed in quite the precarious situation. They're meeting beginning next week, and I saw this morning, you know, there are futures you can invest in on what the Fed's action will be with respect to adjustment of interest rates. And the futures say 60% chance of a quarter-point hike, 40% chance, this is as of this morning, 40% chance of no change. 0% chance now of a half a point. Wow. And I think that's what's propelling markets. By the way, Liz Warren, you know who she is, don't you? The senator from the great state of Massachusetts. Liz Warren says that Jerome Powell of the Fed needs to be terminated, fired. That's what she said over the weekend, if you caught any of her interviews. She's going crazy. And she's mad, says they should not have hiked rates, does not want them to hike them anymore. And she says that the president, she's imploring the president to immediately fire Jay Powell. Now, let's just point out that the Fed didn't cause this problem the way bad fiscal policy did. It was all the ridiculous spending which caused the Fed to go out and print money to essentially pay for it and make the books balance. Well, they didn't do that on their own accord. They did it because the uh, of bad fiscal policy coming out of, of Washington. All the, It's like asking somebody, can you take apart this alarm clock? The only tool we're going to give you is a hammer. <laughs> pretty much. You can get it apart. That's pretty it's much where we are. not going it was supposed to be. That's exactly where we are. You're, you're right about that. So... I just wanted to point out, Liz Warren voted for every one of those bills. Every single spending bill, of course she supported. Now she's mad because the Fed is trying to fix their fatal error, which produced this rampant inflation and the bank crisis, which is a result of the Fed trying to respond to bad fiscal policy. Well, she's mad because the Fed has made it clear we want to kill two million jobs. That's the only tool we have, as Rhino points out, is to raise rates, hoping that businesses will cut back on spending and investment and expansion, and that'll kill jobs, and that'll moderate inflation. That literally is what they're trying to do. But yet they kept telling us over and over and over again, it's transitory. Don't worry, Jay Powell. Elizabeth Warren told us that. Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, all of them told us that. Well, you're wrong. So I saw this weekend a report about the sharp rise (laughs) in the price of Big Macs. we got to talk to you about Big Mac inflation on the other side of the break here. We're in the Element Well Studios just getting started. We've got Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute at 1105. Stay with us. to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
back in the Element Well Studios. It is midday, Super Talk Mississippi. So, before we went to break, was talking about the Big Mac. So, the average price of a Big Mac. First of all, can you eat for less than ten dollars for lunch these days? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Not unless you got some local mom and pop that has just not changed their prices in the last few years. Uh, help me find one, because I <laughs> I don't know where it is. So a, a Big Mac, the average price in the country, $5.15. Didn't they used to be like $0.99 cents at some point? What am I missing there? Am I wrong? I don't know. I've never been alive when the Big Mac was $0.99, cents, but I, I do remember it being, I think the lowest I remember being was like $1.99, maybe two ninety nine. Well, uh, it's just as shocking to me that it's $5.15. That's 22% more since the pandemic. Uh, here's the here's the price across the country. So I had no idea that the price would, would deviate a bit from state to state, but I guess that makes sense because of the rent and other expenses, of course, of operating a, a McDonald's restaurant. No surprise that the uh, price varies from state to state. The highest highest price for a Big Mac can be found in the state of New York, $5.23. New Jersey, $5.19. California, $5.11. Now, here's the good news. Some good news for the state of Mississippi, Rhino. Out of more than 13,000 McDonald's restaurants in the U.S., those in Mississippi were found to have the lowest price Big Macs, $3.91. Wow. So that's a buck twenty-four less than a national average. $3.91. So maybe in fact you could get a lunch if you limited it to a Big Mac and I guess fries and a drink. Maybe you can get away with less than ten bucks out of your pocket. Be cutting it close. I bet. Depends on especially the, for a value meal, right? If you get the bigger stuff, right? Uh, that was interesting, though. That in the state of Mississippi, three ninety one. Neighboring Alabama, three ninety nine. Arkansas, three ninety five. Louisiana, four fifteen. Tennessee, four eleven. Well, inflation has come to the Big Mac. That's what that means. Incredible. I'm trying to find it. I saved it over the weekend, but there's a... Oh, here it is. In California, you want to take a guess how much a a Popeye's bucket of chicken... I guess they don't do buckets. That's KFC. Yeah. We'll say a 12-piece tender at Popeye's in California would cost you. Just the tenders. Yeah. Twenty nine ninety nine for a dozen tenders. <laughs> Golly. Well, you want it with one large side and four biscuits? Forty one ninety nine for a dozen tenders. <laughs> one large side and four biscuits. Well that's it's not even at man. the airport. Like you would understand if you had a fast food place at the airport they're gonna charge you through the nose. No, it's just a regular random old Popeyes in California. Wow. That's something. I guess it's sign of the times. But according to Janet Yellen, inflation is transitory. And according to Liz Warren, we've got to fire Jay Powell. 
I really don't know what Powell's going to do with respect to interest rates. Uh, we, we've talked about what the futures market is predicting. But it's quite the quandary for OJ, because increasing rates further pressures uh, an already rather tumultuous banking industry, because it just devalues those assets on their books in the form of bonds at lower interest-bearing rates, interest rates, I should say. So, I mean, this is what took SVB down from an asset perspective, notwithstanding just horrible management and bad decision-making. And once again, putting immutable physical traits above experience, capability, qualifications in the in the selection of board members. When are we going to learn on that sort of stuff? It's incredible watching all that unfold over the weekend. You know, the other thing is, of course, the Democrats are pointing to the the bill which uh, watered down, I guess you could say, or certainly increased the, the thresholds for some of the banking stress testing regulations, blaming it on Trump, of course, and the era of Trump. Well, the bill, by the way, that was passed that did, in fact, increase the asset value of a bank that would subject it to all these various stress tests and regulations, it got 33 Democrat House votes and 17 in the Senate. In fact, without 10, you couldn't have passed. You have to have 60 in the Senate to overcome the filibuster. This is what she says uh, is the fault of Trump, yet it's her Democrat, talking about Liz Warren, it's her Democrat cohorts who supported this stuff. And it's her support of these ridiculous spending bills that sparked runaway inflation. Where is she on this? She's nowhere, of course, because the average person just doesn't know, won't dig into this, and that's why we're enlightening you here on this. It needs to be pointed out. She's busy running focus groups as to what is the perfect shade of white for her hair to come up for the next election. <laughs> what did uh, somebody say here on the ceasefire text line? Get her a beer. <laughs> you remember when you played that here on the program? Hey, hon, how about a beer or whatever the heck it was. Thanks for coming. It's his, it's his house, too. <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. So we'll see where all this banking stuff goes. It's um, certainly something to keep an eye on. It's a concern. you got First Republic Bank, Signature Bank, Signature Bank, the folks that also got in big old trouble. They're the ones that were focused on their pronoun seminar <laughs> with, what's his name, Finn Brigham, who came in. We figured they paid him a hundred grand to come in, spend a couple of hours training bank employees, proper use of pronouns. Very important. Much more important than assessing the risk on your balance sheet. Pronouns. Top of the list. The, the exuberant CEO 
introducing Finn, who described himself, what was it, gender, queer, trans, masculine, <laughs> something like that. Oh, gosh. That's where we are in corporate America these days. March to mediocrity. Unbelievable. Pronouns. That, that uh, no pun intended, Trump's asset valuations and risk management. Well, it's, it's not even, like, the pronouns are asinine. It's a waste of time and energy. It's a way for them to look at me, look at me, look at me. But it's the mindset behind the pronouns to where if you don't use the correct pronouns, if you misgender them with the wrong pronouns, then that is violence against trans people. <laughs> it's violence against the trans community. No, it's not. Get over yourselves. Grow up. <laughs> Off with your head. You Get the- out of the freaking Peter Pan <laughs> fantasy and grow up. Oh, gosh. On the ceasefire text line, Dustin from Walma, uh, pardon me, Walnut informs that it was 19 degrees in Alcorn County at 6.30 a.m. this morning. Wow. It was cold. Did we set any records, you think? Maybe so. Surely not. And is today the first day of spring? I do believe so. It it's is. about par for the course for the Magnolia State. Exactly. It's the value of their non-loan assets. Loan-to-deposit ratios are down, so liquid assets are in... I can't follow it. Treasuries that we... Yeah. Bottom line is there are some assets on the books that are carried at a value that if they were marked to market, the market value of those assets would be considerably lower and if they have a run on deposits and they've got to go liquidate those assets, they don't make any money. In fact, they lose big money off of them. And that's what causes the, the problem for the banking industry. It's what happened to SVB, and it's happening to First Republic, Signature Banks, what happened to Credit Suisse as well. It's incredible. A lot of stuff going on. We're coming right back. We've got Aaron Rice, the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, at 1105. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studios kicking off a brand new week on this Monday. Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute at 11.05. What we got going on in the legislature this week there, Rhino? Is it conference week? 
I do believe conference weekend will be this weekend, so they'll be finishing up all the uh, goings-on under the dome. Winding on down, isn't it? Quickly approaching Sine Die. Yeah. Well, get them on out of there so they can't make any more laws. (laughs) (laughs) So over the weekend, though, all this banking activity, you got First Republic Bank that ran into some liquidity problems, and 11 banks came to their aid by depositing $30 billion uh, in those banks. In that bank, pardon me. And now it's being said that mm, might not be enough. They're deeper into their junk bonds now to try to raise money. So you got that. You got UBS announcing that they're acquiring Credit Suisse. And then the FDIC uh, announced that there's been an agreement struck to sell Signature Bank. Also, that's the one with Finn Brigham, the pronoun guy. They hired him, of course. FDIC announces agreements to sell Signature Bank assets to New York Community Bank Corp. subsidiary. Wow. So it, you don't see a lot of activity in that industry, not, not like you did... Back in the 90s, where you saw lots of consolidation, just sort of natural evolution of an industry, this is, to some degree, by force, by need, to keep these banks afloat. So these assets are being sold at a big old discount to keep them going. It wouldn't surprise me if we don't see more. We've got a report coming from sources that says... Nearly the social science research, by the way, social science research network, they they traditionally analyze the banking sector and publish papers on it. Say there are 186 banks across the country that could fail if half, half of their depositors quickly withdrew their funds. Half. Again, back to the fractional banking structure putting them at risk. So that is a a problem for sure that we will keep an eye on. Even insured depositors, those with 250k or less in the bank could have problems getting their cash if these institutions face the sort of run that Silicon Valley Bank did just a week ago. They got a lot of money tied up in low interest government treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, this could be a problem. What about Donald Trump? He said over the weekend he's going to be arrested tomorrow. Yeah, he he said Tuesday, which makes me think they're not going to let it happen tomorrow. I think that's right. D.A. Alvin Bragg is more worried about arresting Donald Trump than, I don't know, murder, mayhem, other forms of crime and the New York City area. Forget about that. Well, you've seen New York's latest answer to their rat problem, haven't you? What's that? They're changing the times. They're putting out their trash to trick the rats. 
Oh, gosh. They sent out a little flyer from Sanitation. <laughs> Send rats packing set-out times for waste or changing on April 1st. No joke. Does that work? No. I didn't think so. So we're trying to outsmart the rats at their own game, essentially. Using the man-made construct of time. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that rats, of course, all have watches on their little feet. Oh, of course. <laughs> Golly. Sitting there on the stoop with their little mouse pocket watch out going, where's the food? <laughs> oh, well, so Trump is imploring protests over this uh, prospect of being arrested. Here's what I think. If he gets arrested and indicted but not convicted, he wins in a landslide. I really do think that would be the case. If there's not a conviction, I'm not sure that it positively helps him. But I don't think it's smart on the part of his detractors to push this case that I have a hard time understanding exactly what the charge is. From a legal perspective, it's it's weak. I mean, it's stretching the stretching sort of deal. Oh, but the walls are closing in for the umpteenth <laughs> time. <laughs> I mean, it's, regardless of what you think about the person's personality, his politics, etc., this just looks a little weak to me. It looks like a stretch, but they made it very clear, did Alvin Bragg, the DA there, and who is it, Letitia James, the AG, that was their top priority is arresting and convicting Donald Trump. By the way, Letitia James, did you see this, sponsored the Attorney General of the great state of New York? I think I got this right. Sponsored a drag story hour? What is the obsession with drag stories? Like, are, is that the only people that can read books, drag queens? It's a drag story hour, and it drew protest from even members of the city council and police officers. Some hundred protesters showed up to say this ain't right. What is the deal with this drag queen stuff? We're just so obsessed with sex and pronouns and all this crap sexual orientation well i mean the fear of clowns has pervaded society and i guess children are just afraid of clowns so you can't have a clown come read to them but you need someone with just as much makeup and just as much camp. <laughs> i got you so you got to find a whole bunch of dudes wearing the girl costume to go to the school or the library and read to them dudes <laughs> That's what they are. Self-proclaimed, right? Oh, yeah. ABC News published a rather lengthy article over the weekend on gender dysphoria. Oh, very informative, by the way. And it was a it was a promotion for gender affirming care. And it uh, says, Physicians say gender-affirming care is safe and effective. 
And they're blasting the states which have passed laws, there are eight thus far, restricting this care, including the state of Mississippi. Twenty-three more state legislatures are considering similar legislation. But the medical experts say that understanding transgender identities, gender dysphoria, and how gender-affirming treatments work is key to understanding the impact these bans may have on patients. I'm, uh, I'm struggling with this deal. I mean, if someone truly needs help, and they have some clinical problem, I'm all for them getting help. I just feel like, and I don't think I'm alone in this concern that we rush into, oh, we got to start taking puberty blocking drugs immediately. We got to start taking hormones. We got to just mutilate your body. Just, just do it now. We got to. Just seems like we rush into this a little bit. So a survey, they, they cited a survey in 2015 by the National Center for Transgender Equality who reported that more than 27,000 Trans-Americans responded to the survey. 38% say they knew they were trans before the age of five. 60% knew before they were 10. Are you buying that? No. I just just think back of being five, and between five and 10, I just can't comprehend... That even crossing my mind, and I'm, I don't want to just totally dispute this as bunk here, but that sounds like an awful high percentage. I don't know that a child five and below can reason through that sort of stuff. Just not buying that. We got a break upon us right now. We got some text here on the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. We'll get to next. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Skip and Pearl says regarding our Big Mac inflation story. 1982, Jacksonville, North Carolina. One Big Mac, one cheeseburger, large fry, large Dr. Pepper, and a hot apple pie rang up to exactly five bucks. I believe it. Go to Subway and get six-inch ham done your way on fresh bread for just over five dollars. Yeah, but it wasn't that long ago they were shouting from the rooftops there, $5 foot long. So that's, now you get half for the same price. That's true. Plus, have you noticed that they've all uh, implemented a tip mechanism in their payment systems? Pretty much everywhere now involving food. Looking for a tip. Even some services not involving food looking for tips. I've seen that as well. Oh, yeah. Jeff in Forest County says, I got a lottery question. Are you familiar with the Georgia lottery? Somewhat. I am, Jeff. They introduced a keno game a while back for sports bars and like it draws several times a day with video drawings. Hmm, that's cool. 
Second question, if somebody wins decent prizes and goes to Jackson with a ticket, do they have to form an LLC or trust before signing a ticket to remain anonymous? Well, a couple of corrections there, Jeff. In the state of Mississippi, winners are not compelled by law uh, to reveal their identities. The only thing about signing a ticket, it's a suggestion, just so you know. It is not a requirement. And that's just in case the ticket is lost, because uh, lottery tickets are essentially bearer bonds. Think of them like currency. Whoever's got it can spend it. That ticket is not attached to you. It's not associated with um, the, the person who purchased it. There's no way to do that. I heard it so, explained one time as a lottery ticket is like a, the lottery wrote you a check, but the only way you can cash it is if your number matches their number on the check. That's right. That's exactly right. So it uh, there's no check to make sure well, you were the buyer. That's not a requirement. You just present the ticket. Whoever presents the ticket, the bearer of the ticket, that's who gets the prize. And their, their identity is not revealed. The only the reason it is suggested to sign the ticket, again, is in case it's lost. If somebody else shows up with it, then... There's a question, well, this, is it, this isn't you. Because you do have to prove your, your age and you have to present some ID because if you're going to redeem a prize more than 600 bucks, there's some tax withholdings that have to occur. And that's why you've got to share your identity. That's all in accordance with law. But you're only sharing it with the lottery. That's exactly right. And the lottery is not releasing that. It's not That does not go to the public. And that's the, the discretion of the winner. Some winners choose to remain anonymous. Some are perfectly fine. With um, That's when they get to pull out the big dry yeah, erase big check. check. Yeah, they, and they're fine with that. You know, where you're typically going to see some concern about revealing identity is if you hit the big old jackpots in the Mega Millions or Powerball. Then you got people coming out of the woodwork after you. Yeah, so there's lots of... 17th cousin twice removed. Remember me? <laughs> exactly. Dan in Hattiesburg says, Rhino, I would tell them to grow a set, but they're too busy cutting them off. <laughs> okay. Oh, gosh. Let's see uh, what's what we got here from... That really is what boggles my mind. It's like, okay, fine. You're a grown adult. You want to be called Apache attack helicopter. That's fine. I think it's weird. I'm probably not going to do it. But it's it's well within your rights as a human being and an adult and American citizen to believe whatever you want to believe. But the fact that I'm unwilling to take part in your fantasy is now violence against you? Yeah. That doesn't line up with reality. That's true. Very true. Thomas in Greenwood says, 22 at my house this morning. That is cold. Also said there's a $5 biggie bag. Okay, thanks for that. I wasn't I wasn't aware. If you can find a bumpers. <laughs> bumpers, yeah. Bumpers biggie bag. Oh, okay. I'm not familiar. I don't, I don't eat at bumpers, so I don't know. There was a huge commercial when i was growing up they had a whole jingle and everything i'm not going to sing it for you but if you've ever heard it it's now stuck in your head bumpers biggie back oh yeah okay well i like that in the meantime backyard burgers they're all shut down right seems like it i haven't heard a report of any of them opening up recently the one in madison i believe still open i believe yeah i'm talking about ones that were closed oh okay yeah they're still closed yeah yeah i 
<clears throat> the word is all of them are going to close. That's what I'm hearing. I don't know that for a fact. Amanda from Pike County says New York City needs to give everyone a cat. That'll get rid of the rats. <laughs> That's a good idea. I'm usually not the first guy out to defend Trump, but what they are doing to him in New York is wrong. This is Ben from Madison on the ceasefire tax line. I'm worried all of this is going to turn into a political tit for tat. That'll be a really bad thing for the U.S. It, heck, it already is. I hear you, Ben. It already is. It's um, it's just finger pointing back and forth, and feels like in the meantime Rome is burning. We're not addressing our most critical issues. We got Aaron Rice coming in after Fox News and Super Talk News here at the top of the hour. Don't forget it's Monday, so that means Super Talk Outdoors with Ricky Matthews at twelve. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is middays. It's a Monday. We're kicking off a brand new week. It's a bit chilly out there. Of course, you know, we always have uh, journey tunes bumping us into the uh, hours on the program. That being, of course, everybody knows by now my favorite. I've been tracking them. They've been touring, selling out everywhere. Still selling out everywhere. Because they don't make music like that anymore. That's true. I think people are saying, we better go see real music. For these guys age out. They're, they're touring, I mean, like almost every night. How does the voice, how do the fingers handle that sort of uh, work, that sort of labor? Years and years of practice. Got to be. We've got Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, joining us now in the Element Well Studios. Good to see you, Aaron, the hey. Mississippi Justice Institute. How you doing? Good. Hey, Gerard. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Uh, you guys been busy tracking some cases, and uh, yeah. tell us about that, and then we want to talk about the student loans, which yeah. are, which is kind of a time bomb ticking up there sure. at the Supreme Court. For sure, yeah. I don't think uh, you and I have gotten a chance to talk about this one, but we had we filed a new case uh, late last year that's in litigation now, and it's actually about abortion in Mississippi, and it's interesting because in my conversation with folks, I've realized that very few people really realize this, but so, of course, we know, and you and I have talked a lot about it, that the Dobbs case finally held, and, you know, when it overruled Roe, held that the United States Constitution does not protect a right to an abortion. Right. And so what I was saying that a lot of people don't understand is that every state also has its own state constitution, and those state constitutions operate completely independently of the U.S. Constitution, and so they can guarantee rights that are not guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. And so we actually have a Mississippi Supreme Court opinion on the books here in Mississippi that says the Mississippi Constitution protects a right to abortion. Okay. That goes back to 1998, uh, some some 
you know, pro-abortion advocates brought a case in state court to litigate that under the state constitution because they weren't able to obtain, you know, to strike down a Mississippi uh, parental consent law under the federal constitution. So they went to state court and and tried to do it there. And, and ultimately, the Mississippi Supreme Court held that the Mississippi constitution protects the right to abortion. So we are in a really weird position right now where post-Dobbs, we've enacted this trigger law that says abortion is illegal in Mississippi, but we actually still have an opinion on the books from the Mississippi Supreme Court saying that elective abortion is a constitutional right in this state, under the state constitution, again, not under the federal constitution. And so uh, we have brought a case on behalf of some pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists and it's really interesting how this is is playing out because they are under a situation where uh, uh, a lot of uh, professional medical societies that are very kind of politically charged and very uh, pro-abortion have been pushing them and pushing pro-life doctors to either provide abortions or refer, refer patients for abortions. And if they don't do that, they might get in trouble with these professional medical societies and these uh, these board uh, certification uh, organizations. And so the problem is that under the way our state law operates, if these pro-life doctors get in trouble with those board certification organizations and those professional uh, medical societies, it could they it could trigger them getting in trouble with the state too uh, because they've lost their board certification or their hospital privileges or things like that, and so they're in a situation where on one hand a state law tells them abortion is illegal, on the other hand it's arguably a constitutional right or it really is still a constitutional right, and they might wind up getting in trouble with these professional medical societies and and ultimately with the state, and so uh, we filed a lawsuit on behalf of them and we're saying to the courts, and ultimately this will be decided by the Mississippi Supreme Court, we believe, that, look, this needs to be clarified. We need to we need the courts to tell us is this is abortion in mississippi illegal or not is it is it a state constitutional right and my belief is that uh if and when this gets to the mississippi supreme court the mississippi supreme court will just like the u.s supreme court overruled roe uh and the casey opinion the mississippi supreme court will overrule this case it's it's called the fordyce opinion from 1998 pro-choice mississippi versus fordyce and and a big part of the reason for that is because that old case relied very heavily on the roe case and the Casey case oh, from the U.S. Supreme Court. It looked at it, kind of followed the same path, cited it a lot, and said, we're going to do the same thing here. We think our state constitution operates the same way. And so now that those opinions from the U.S. Supreme Court, now, again, the Mississippi Supreme Court does not have to follow those, but since it relied so heavily on them in 1998 and now they no longer are good law, I think that when this gets in front of the Mississippi Supreme Court, they'll do the same thing the U.S. Supreme Court did. But, again, it's very interesting because a lot of people don't even realize that we still technically have a state constitutional right to abortion on the books here, and it really could lead to some trouble for a lot of physicians. You know, this just seems like an issue to me, Aaron, that doesn't belong in the Constitution whatsoever. Well, and I I completely agree with you. And that's just how, just like how the right to abortion allegedly worked its way into the U.S. Constitution, it did the same thing here. I mean, they were relying on a provision of the U.S. Constitution that says, you know, the enumeration of certain rights in this Constitution does not mean that other rights don't also exist. It's kind of an unenumerated rights provision. And so, you know, if you're going to allege, if you're going to say, Say that okay, we're t- we think there's a right that's not men- mentioned in our state constitution. 
uh, and and the court should recognize it, you need to be able to show that there is a long history and tradition in the state at the time of the ratification of that uh, constitutional provision, that that right was recognized by the people and by the courts and, and all of that. Uh, and you just can't do that with abortion. Right. I mean, in fact, abortion was criminalized in most contexts uh, at the time of the ratification of our 1890 Constitution. And so uh, I, I think it's a very good case uh, that, that you know, there is not a state constitutional right to abortion. The Mississippi Supreme Court was incorrect when it decided that in 1998, just like the U.S. Supreme Court was incorrect when it decided the Roe case. It's fascinating, is it not, from a legal perspective to watch how the states are sort of bifurcating around this issue. Absolutely. I, the state of Minnesota, a couple of months ago in January, Governor Waltz there uh, signed a bill essentially uh, enshrining a statute at least. Yeah. Uh, very, very um, accessible, uh, lax standards, I should say, around abortion, making it accessible really up to the point of birth. Yeah. All the way through the third trimester. And uh, and of course he's surrounded by a group of um, of pro-choice advocates as he's just elated at signing this yeah. bill. But then we have other states, such as Mississippi, that acted to immediately uh, trigger um, statute, I guess, laws on the books after Absolutely. the Roe case that, that bans all abortion. And, and it's, what's interesting to me about that is that the pro-abortion crowd has just completely ignored that. Now, you know, the mantra leading up to the Dobbs case was, oh, they're going to outlaw abortion right. nationwide. They're going to, you know, take away your, your right to abortion across the board. And, you know, people like you and I were talking then before it happened. And the day it happened and, and trying to educate people and say that's not what's happening. This is returning the power, you know, back to the people and to the states for each state to decide. And so, of course, yeah, you have some states like Mississippi that are very pro-life and are going to decide it this way and other states are going to decide it another way. But, you know, now that talking point is just kind of totally ignored now and that uh, that, you know, it just illustrates that you and I were right about that yeah, all along. Yeah, because what we've seen now are states that are more inclined to be pro-life have all been scrambling to either enact legislation or legislation has yep. been triggered uh, to severely restrict abortion yep. in, in the wake of the, the Roe decision. And then you got those such as Minnesota, the, the big pro-choice states, that have been going in the opposite direction, Absolutely. making abortion way more accessible. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, even funding it, funding yeah. the procedure, travel to those states. Yep. You've got lots of major corporations that have uh, adjusted their policies, their their uh, benefit programs to pay for their employees who live in restricted states such as Mississippi to travel to a state where it's not restricted. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one of the things that was so interesting to me about it when Dobbs came down and, and in the aftermath of Dobbs, and you still hear this sometimes, and it's just, I can't believe it, but you hear on the pro-abortion Side, people describe the Dobbs opinion as you know undemocratic, and and it's it's such a turning yeah. it on its head. It's the Roe the Roe case was, was undemocratic. undemocratic, right? I mean, you know, the court had inserted itself into a national controversy that rightly belonged to the states and to the people. You know, for the people through their elected representatives to make this decision, it was not in the Constitution. I mean, there are things that are in the Constitution that are not up for debate. You know, right. they're not that. That's how our system operates. That we wanted certain things to be you know outside of the democratic process abortion is not one of them and so it was always intended to be something for the states to decide and the people to decide and so going back to roe the court 
very undemocratically removed that debate from the people and said, we're going to decide it. We're going to strike this compromise and end this controversy, and we, we hope everybody will just get along after this. And and it was – if you go back – I mean, legal scholars have said this, you know, uh, since the Roe opinion. If you read it, it gave very little, you know, even impression that it was trying to actually be constitutional law. Right. It was just kind of a, we're going to make this decision for the people. And so to say that Dobbs is undemocratic has, just has it so backwards. It's the most democratic thing. It's saying, we're going to get the court out of this and let this go back to the democratic process where it always belonged. It seems to me like we're going to break here that Dobbs really was in conflict with the Tenth Amendment. It, it, you mean you're wrong. Yeah, you uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Wrote, yes, yeah, absolutely. Wrote, yes. I completely agree. Yeah. We're taking a break right here. We've got uh, Aaron Rice in the Element Well Studios. When we come back, we're going to discuss this student loan case that's before the Supreme Court. Stay with us. Days with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. We're back with you in the Element Well Studios. Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, our guest. So the student loan deal, I mean, let, let's let's level set, provide a little background. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, there's some 1.5, it is estimated, $1.5 trillion of outstanding student loans that uh, – there's been a pause on repayment uh, mm-hmm. for, yep. since 2020, yep. right? Yep. Since the pandemic. And uh, since then, of course, that it's always been kind of hanging around out there that, oh, gosh, we're going to have to to resume these, these payments, yeah. and that's not politically popular. So yeah. the president says, well, this is the time to act. We've always wanted to forgive student loans. I'm just going to do this through... Executive order. Yeah. Just, just, I'm just going to declare that student loans are forgiven. I think it's $10,000 or $20,000. Both. Depending on whether or not you got a Pell Grant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's some other income tests and so forth yeah. associated with that. But in general, um, it's a big old just wiping out of debt on the government balance sheet. And it's estimated to be some $500 billion. Yeah. Half, half a trillion. Half bucks. trillion. So some states have stepped in, right, and said, we don't think the president, and it's not so much about student debt, the the idea, the concept, the merits, the the negative aspects of forgiveness of student debt, but does the president have this sort of power? Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot to unpack in this, and, and, you know, some of this uh, relates to it, but you had mentioned that the president said we've always wanted to do this. So, I mean, that's important here. This was something that President Biden campaigned on before COVID even existed, you know, said he wanted to do this. And another thing that's important is that bills to do this have been put in front of Congress and failed. So, in other words, specifically during COVID to say, hey, does Congress actually want to wipe out the student debt, not not forbear it? 
uh, put a pause on it, but actually, you know, cancel the principle. And Congress has said no. And so, you know, that really illustrates that what's going on here is that the executive branch, when it can't, and we have seen this time and again, you and I have talked about so many cases that are like this, but when the executive branch can't get what they want through the normal political process, that's when they seize on a regulation, they dust off some old regulation that's very vague that Congress had passed, that gives some power to some executive official, here it's the Secretary of Education, and they claim some unheralded power that's never been used in America before. For, I mean, for example, the the vaccine, you know, tester or, or vaccine mandate. You yeah. know, it's the same thing. All of a sudden, OSHA had this unheralded power that nobody knew hmm. they had. And so that's what's really the issue in this case. It, it gets to what's called the major questions doctrine that the U.S. Supreme Court has especially been building out lately. Uh, but it's been around for a long time. And and it says, look, you know, if, if, if uh, an executive... Br- agency is going to try to uh, solve some major political or economic issue, we expect that Congress would have spoken clearly if Congress wanted them to do that. Yeah. And and you can't take, again, this old, vague regulation that's never been used this way, that's been on the books for 50, 60, 80 years, and just claim this power to do it. And that's really what's going on. It's This is just like the OSHA vaccine mandate case that MJI was involved in and, and the Attorney General of Mississippi was involved in and, you know, other cases like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that that's, that's where things are. What's also interesting is that the case is being litigated primarily based on whether the states have standing to be in court to begin with and not the merits of the actual case of course that gets you know argued but the the laser focus of the you know kind of uh democratic Hmm. appointed justices on the u.s supreme court and of the solicitor general of the united states who's defending uh the the you know president biden's actions here and the secretary of education's actions here all of the argument is really about do the state can the states be in court on this? Are they being injured directly enough by this act to even be here? And it just goes to show, I mean, I think the Biden administration, they did a lot of things when they set this up that showed that they knew it was unconstitutional. They tried to set it up in a way that made it very difficult for anybody to bring a claim. For example, they only applied it to federally held loans instead of loans that are that are done by private agencies because right. they knew those people would come to court. I mean, what's the basis there? If you're really trying to if the if the if it's really designed to provide relief, why would you distinguish between the types of loans? It's all the same to the borrower. Yeah. But they did that to try to keep people from, from coming into court. There were other people who would file a claim and say, for example, this is going to injure me because I already have student loan relief through some public service program that not only do I not have to pay it back, but it's exempt on my taxes. But now if I get this relief that I don't even want, it's going to affect my state taxes because it's calculated differently. So I'm actually losing losing money on this and I want to bring a lawsuit. And the Biden administration, as soon as they would bring that lawsuit, they would email them or, or notify the court and say, uh, we're going to treat this lawsuit as as them saying they want to opt out, which we didn't even have a way to do yesterday, but we're creating a way to opt out and we're going to consider this person <laughs> opted out of the program. But they've done all of this to try to keep anybody from getting into court. And it just goes to show that it's really a clear case to me and to a lot of folks that they don't have the authority to do this be- to begin with. And that's why they spend so much time and effort trying to keep people out of court and setting it up in a way that makes it difficult for anybody to challenge. The nation is being run by the bureaucrats in the agency yeah. spectrum. Yeah, and it's it's been that way for a while, which is, you know, I, I'm glad to see, and we've had this conversation, I think, but, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court 
especially with this majority it has, has been pushing back on that. And if we did not have the U.S. Supreme Court that we have right now, we would see a, a rampant escalation. I mean, we already have it, but a rampant escalation of the administrative state because they have been, again, seizing on all these unheralded powers, acting as if the executive can basically run the country on his own. And or the executive branch can. And and if it weren't for the U.S. Supreme Court pushing back on this, we would have seen a massive increase in administrative you know powers over the last, especially since COVID. Well, with respect to the student loan forgiveness action, 26 million borrowers applied for the forgiveness. 16 million were approved. And then uh, I guess a federal court came stayed in and blocked it. it yeah, right? it's been stayed right now, and that's what's being fight, fought over at the U.S. Supreme Court. Technically, it's not on whether it's not even really on it, whether it's constitutional or not. Although that plays into it, you and I have talked about this kind of thing before too. It's about whether the stay that uh, that the Eighth Circuit, I believe it was, has put in place should be lifted or not. And that kind of gets to who's likely to win. Yeah. And so they're kind of talking about who's likely to win. But another point here is that uh, this act, and again, I talked about this, you know, old act. That you know, and it's really not. This one is not as old as a lot of these, but it's clearly not designed to do what the administration is saying it is here. And so this is called the Heroes Act, and you can tell by the name of it. This was originally passed in 2001 in the wake of 9/11, and it was designed to allow the Secretary of Education to uh, to to pause loans and do things like that for service members who were deploying. And the whole point was to say we don't want them to be in a worse position yeah. financially than they were because they've been affected by war or deployment or whatever. And so they put that in place. It was extended a few times. The last time they did, they added a provision that said, you know, war or deployment or uh, national emergency. And so that's what they're seizing on here is saying, oh, well, there's national emergency. But as you can imagine, there's there's been no effort or no ability really to tie what they're doing here to COVID or to the national emergency or that the people who they're waiving these loans for are actually affected in any way by that, that they, if they can't repay their loans, that it's somehow related to COVID. And, you know, there's just so many, so many problems with it. And beyond that, the, the act itself clearly does not authorize the Secretary of Education to just wipe out the principle of a loan. I mean, it says he can waive or modify, you know, basically any regulation or any provision of the act that sets up this student loan, these student loan payments. But there are other provisions of the law that make it clear that Congress was authorizing the Secretary of Education to actually waive principle on loans. So if you think about, like, teachers who have loans and go teach in a rural area and they can get their loan waived, or people who do public service programs can get it waived, when Congress wanted the Secretary of Education to be able to do that, it made it clear and said you can you can wipe out a loan in these cases. It did not say that here. And right. there, we, could, I could, we could just go on and on. There are so many problems with it. But again, I think the Biden administration knew that. The, Secretary, the, the Department of Education said before you know, Biden became the president, that the Department of Education did not have the authority to waive the principle of basically every loan that existed worldwide. Right. You know? And and then, of course, after the election and, and after, you know, being unable to get this done through Congress, then all of a sudden the Department of Education discovered this unheralded power that it actually did have the ability to do this and went ahead and tried to do it. And so it's just, it's just kind of a brazen, you know, executive fiat. Three Republican senators have introduced or plan to introduce a resolution to essentially thwart uh, Biden's uh, attempt here. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see where they get Cassidy, Cornyn, and I think Joni Ernst yeah. of Iowa. 
Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. It's it's fascinating, but we got to keep an eye on it. We appreciate you coming in. Absolutely. An update. Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. Half an hour left in middays from the Element Well Studio. Stay with us. Mississippi. It days with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. and Mel of Grand Funk Railroad, closer to home, bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We're in the final half hour on this Monday because Super Talk Outdoors with Ricky Matthews is scheduled to air at 12.05. So I appreciate Aaron coming in. There was a question Thomas asked whether or not Aaron thought the public health emergency would be allowed to expire in May. It's scheduled to end May 11th. He uh, wanted to pass on, Thomas, that recall that it expires either May 11th or upon resolution of the student loan case, whichever is later. So if the student loan case is still being heard without uh, a decision by the Supreme Court, the PHE would not expire. However, those student loans are certainly a big aspect of, in terms of what's impacted upon expiration of the public health emergency. Medicaid's the other huge one that we've discussed some on the program, but I personally do not believe is getting the attention that uh, it should because two things happen with respect to the um, the big old omnibus spending bill the consolidation the consolidated appropriations act of 2023 that was of course you remember rhino signed into law december 29th remember how they were pushing everybody sign here we got to get out of town for the holidays signed into law the 29th, and what it did is it decoupled the Medicaid continuous enrollment provision and the enhanced federal federal matching dollars to the states, all uh, both of which were implemented in March of 2020, three years later. It decoupled that from the public health emergency. So it's independent of the expiration of the public health emergency. It is scheduled to expire March 31st. 
the enhanced FMAP, the federal match, and the continuous enrollment provision. What that means is that effective April 1, not so long from today, a couple of weeks, states can begin disenrolling those in the Medicaid program who were no longer eligible. It's estimated that about 20 million Americans currently enrolled in Medicaid are going to lose their Medicaid coverage. It's about a little more than 20% of the total enrolled. It's hard to believe we have 91 million, according to the latest figures from the CMS, enrolled in Medicaid in this country. So doing the math, applying that math uh, to Mississippi, it, it means some hundred to 120,000 Mississippians would lose their coverage, would be notified you're no longer eligible for Medicaid. Beginning April 1, the states are actually compelled by the federal government. Some states have already begun the process of uh, taking a hard look at that. Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho. They're going to start this in April. Some other states have said they're going to do it in May and June and July. But the enhanced FMAP, the money we get from the federal government, which currently is more than the standard federal match, pre-COVID federal match, that starts phasing out. 6.2% is the amount, the additional amount. That starts phasing out in April over a six-month period, bringing us back to where we were before COVID. I think this is going to cause a bit of a ruckus when people find out, what do you mean I'm getting kicked off Medicaid? Because the average Medicaid subscriber, I don't believe, knows that they're about to get kicked off. I just don't think that they're paying attention to this sort of stuff. You've heard nothing from our legislature about this. We've talked about it extensively here on the program, because I think it's a big deal. Um, The roles have increased by some 28%, (laughs) incredible, since uh, the continuous enrollment provision. So this is going down. So what do these folks do that no longer have insurance? They certainly could shop in the exchanges for private coverage. I've promoted this routinely here on the program that I I think that's another area that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, the most inappropriately named bill ever, though I don't agree with this provision. It is law, and and that provision is, uh, those provisions actually expanded subsidies in the Affordable Care Act exchange systems, and these folks could go shop for coverage there and get get, uh, insurance, zero premiums. They would have out-of-pocket costs, co-pays and deductibles that they presently don't have in Medicaid, But it's either that or they go uninsured. But they still, of course, show up at the doctor and the hospitals and the clinics and so forth, and they they get care even though they don't have insurance, and they don't pay for it. That's where we are, and that's what's about to happen. Now, I I heard the soundbite where Don McVeigh, 
from the um, small business organization, the NFIB, been on our program many a times, was saying that her members opposed uh, Medicaid expansion. I think she was on with Paul. And uh, members oppose it, and that's that's certainly fine. And I know that the Speaker of the House is, opposes it and has, has written an article about how we should return to more individual responsibility and wean ourselves off of government dependency. I completely agree. And again, I ask, why don't we just back out of Medicaid altogether? Why don't we just tell the federal government that we have unfortunately put too many Mississippians on the federal and the state dole who rely on Medicaid for their health care coverage, and maybe we should just start the process of exiting Medicaid altogether. Some 740,000 Mississippians in the state would no longer have health care coverage. There have been some who have said, well, look, you're more likely to die if you have Medicaid than if you don't. So should that be the next move that the state makes? We could save about a billion dollars a year of state money, and we tell the federal government, keep your $6 billion. Is that the direction we should go? It's a, it's a serious question. Don't say my name, but we are going to do it April 1st. Yeah, I, I've heard that as well from this listener. I, I'm respectful of the fact that they don't want their name disclosed. If you tell us that, we won't. Uh, I've heard that as well in uh, talking to folks in uh, Medicaid, that we are going to proceed April 1. I believe that as well, disenrolling people. And, and uh, look, if they're not eligible, they're not eligible. They should be disenrolled. I completely agree and support that. I'm just pointing out that that's going to leave 120,000 or so people. It's not so much that they're without health care. They're still going to get health care. It's just that that just puts more pressure on hospitals, which are already underwater, many of them are, and that they're going to be providing services without being reimbursed for them. I do agree with the Speaker that we need to reduce our dependency on government. I'd like to see the private sector step up. I'd like to see the the faith community step up as well. The question is, can they absorb $6 billion? Is the private sector and the faith community willing to absorb and that's at Medicaid. If they if they were to say shoulder the cost of private coverage, because I've not seen any arguments that private coverage produces worse health outcomes than no out uh, the no coverage. I've only seen that Medicaid produces worse out- health outcomes than no coverage. So, does it make sense to try to get these people on private coverage? Those who otherwise would be covered by Medicaid. Well, the cost of Medicaid is six billion. So can we rely on our faith community, our churches, to take up the mantle and shell out $6 billion? It's a serious question, because that's essentially what we're saying. Again, it's this isn't something you can do without health care, specifically. It's not like, well, they can do it without cell phones. I agree. And fancy sneakers and Dooney Burke purses and all that crap, that's... 
That's really abhorrent, in my view, when they're spending their money on that as opposed to health care. But I'll share with you a, a mathematical fact when we come back in the next segment regarding the cost of coverage. Stay with us. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays, and we're in the final segment on this Monday, but we got a big week in store for you. Coming up, looking forward to all the news and the events that will unfold during the week. Dan in Hattiesburg says there's a lot of churches that can barely afford to keep the doors open, let alone worry about the health care of the public. I think Dan's probably right. Uh, all I'm saying is, and it, this isn't a, a statement in favor of Medicaid expansion. I'm just saying if, if Medicaid expansion is bad, then Medicaid, by definition, is bad. Therefore, we should exit it and just tell the federal government, keep your $6 billion. And we could save the state a billion. That's a lot of money. Medicaid is the second largest spending item in the general fund budget. Typically is in most states. They line up this way. It's education first, Medicaid second, corrections third, and then everything else. That's usually what state budgets look like in Mississippi. State Medicaid somewhere between $900 million and a $1 billion, historically. So we could save that by just getting out of the Medicaid program. Should we have even entered the Affordable Care Act? Exchanges. Should we have allowed those plans in that marketplace to operate in Mississippi? I mean, that's all funded by the federal government. Huge welfare program. Huge. 150,000 Mississippians enrolled in the Affordable Care Act exchanges. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Rhino, and say there are another 200,000 that are eligible for it that don't even know it exists. I could see that. Our legislature doesn't understand how it works. And that's fine. They honestly shouldn't have to, except when you have this major change at the federal level just occurred with the Inflation Reduction Act. That was major, major. Why? Because if your income is between 100 and 150 percent of the federal poverty level, you're eligible for coverage for zero. Before the Inflation Reduction Act, it was limited to 2% of your household income. So if you were at 100% you're an individual, your insurance was capped at roughly 300 bucks a year. A year! Speaking of which, I teased that before we went to the break. There's always the question about the needy. I'm with them. You don't want people sucking the resources dry that, that can afford it on their own that game the system, scheme it. I totally agree. It should be designated strictly for those who truly do need it. But keep in mind, in the case of Medicaid, the coverage group that consumes most of the money 
It's the indigent elderly. They cannot work. They're in a nursing home. Are they needy? What about the blind? Limited what they can do to produce income. Are they needy? The disabled. These are the three groups that consume 75% of the cost. In terms of enrollment numbers, the biggest group's children. They don't consume that much of the cost. And they typically live in households where they're eligible, but their parents aren't. But have you priced insurance late? You see it on your paycheck, Rhino. So if you're at a I try not to look at it. It's ridiculous. 100% of the federal poverty level this year is $14,580. The cost of coverage? For an, that's for an individual, that's for a family of one, a household of one. The cost of typical private coverage in this state? I'm not talking about just the amount you pay. I'm talking about the total cost. You and your employer together. Go shopping for it. I have. Maybe you can get 800 bucks a month? 900 so you make $14,580 and your insurance is ten grand a year. And it doesn't work. And that's just a statement about how crazy the whole thing's gotten. It's not about Medicaid or, or insurance. And I'm just saying that's what it costs. What we should be focused on is the, the large number of people we have in our state that are even eligible. That's because they have low income. So you look at you look at a household of two, and you look at those who are eligible uh, for Medicaid that are that are under the postpartum rules. Well, that means that's a mother and a child that make about twenty seven thousand dollars a year. Well, insurance for the mother and the child is about 15 a year. Doesn't leave a whole lot. This is the problem. I don't have the solution, and I'm not saying Medicaid expansion's it. I'm just analyzing the problem, framing the problem that needs to be addressed. We're out of time here today, but we're back in the Element Well Studios again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Ricky Matthews up next. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.